welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Amber, for getting together with me. No problem. And it's just beautiful out here at the park, and I was looking forward to talking with you. So you grew up in the U.K., mm-hmm. and uh, how old were you when you came to the U.S.? The first time I was 16, I went to Jefferson College in Hillsborough for a year. Okay, and then you, you went back after that to the U.K.? Yeah, I ran out of money, <laughs> okay. so I went back home and ended up moving, getting married when I was 18, so home for a year, back, Okay. and then... And then is your husband from the UK also? No, he's from Jefferson County, Missouri. And that's where you met him at when you came here? Uh, I met him online, actually. Okay. Back before that was cool, like it is now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, So what brought you to the U.S. to go to Jefferson um, College? He did. He did? Okay. It was so I could spend more time with him. Okay. So you met him online before coming. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, and how old were you when you, you came over? You said 18? 16, 16. That first time. In the UK, you leave school, or you can leave school at 16. Okay. So that's kind of the equivalent of graduation when you hit 16, the end of that school year. Okay. And then you can stay longer and do kind of higher level courses if you choose. But So I was, I thought it would be fun to come to America instead of staying in school longer. So what did your family think about it? Um, I mean, they were supportive, but I'm sure they would have rather I didn't go to America for a year. But um, they were always very much like, kind of follow what you want to do. Don't make your life decisions based on us, if that makes sense. Okay. You know, don't yeah. don't stay around for our sake. Go do what you want to do and see the world. Well, tell me a little bit about your family, um, like mom and dad and siblings, or or just you? Or um, I'm the oldest of three. Okay. Typical firstborn. Okay. Like to lead <laughs> mm-hmm. and be in charge. Um, so I have two younger brothers. Mom and dad got married very young, and after a very short time of being together, they met in. I think it was October and November and married in the January. And my mum was 17. And then um, had me the following year. So sort of a year and a bit after they got married. Um, and then they they did divorce, but much later. So I was an adult when they divorced. So our whole childhood, we, it was, you know, all of us together at home. And my two younger brothers, the one is 18 months younger than me. The other is eight years younger than me and he actually has a rare genetic disease so he was quite sick on and off growing up Um, but him and I are really close still he comes to visit often as often as he can he's supposed to visit this month actually but now he can't because of the um, coronavirus so yeah so um, like you're involved with the Christian faith at this time did you grow up with that? No, not at all. My parents were actually raised, like my my mum was sort of half raised Catholic, half Mormon. Hmm. Um, so that was very confusing for her, I think. 
Um, my dad was raised in the Mormon church. And so they both were just very skeptical of religion and still to this day my dad is very much skeptical of Christianity and um, always, you know, that experience of growing up in that church just really turned him off from any religion at all. Um, so I was exposed to Christianity first through school because in England, at least back then, I'm not sure now, schools are um, still Christian. And I say that sort of with air quotes around the word because there's not much depth to it, but it's sort of like every day you sing hymns and, hmm. you know, Easter and Christmas you read the Bible stories and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I've sort of raised with a vague knowledge that there is a God and then everybody is who's going through the schools in England? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then Aaron's family is Christian. My husband, Aaron. Sorry, I didn't mention his name for listeners. Um, so I just sort of started getting exposed to it. And when I was 16, I thought I got saved. But really, I realized years later that I was absolutely not saved. It was just sort of fire insurance I didn't change anything about my life. I didn't have any desire to change or to stop sinning. I just had the mindset of like, well, Jesus forgave my sins, so I can kind of do what I want. Mm -hmm. And it's forgiven, so why does it matter? Um, And I was listening to a CD of uh, one of Ray Comfort's messages, if you're familiar with him. I am. And we kind of had it on repeat in the car for weeks because we just really liked the the message it was um trying to remember the name of it it's probably one of his most hell's best kept secret Hmm. was the one one of his most famous probably sermons so to speak if you want to call it that um and it just hit me like a ton of bricks one time when i was listening to it like he was talking about people that you know, backslide in their faith and how they're never really safe to begin with and it just hit me like he's talking about me hmm. not just other people you know mm-hmm. and so you know unlike some people I don't know the date or any of those things of when I got saved I just know that that is when the weight of my sin really became clear to me the gravity of it and that's when I would say I truly became a Christian. How old were you then? I must have been 20 or 20... No, older than that. Um, It would have been 2005... No, 2006, based on where we were living at the time. So I was 22 or 23. And so you felt the weight of your sin, the seriousness of it and that... Then what happened next? I mean, did, uh, to alleviate that weight, or um, I mean, I don't, I didn't sort of pray the sinner's prayer or anything like that, which is what I had kind of been taught to do mm-hmm. when I was younger. Um, I just, you know, started praying and seeking God and pulling up my Bible, trying to learn more. Mm-hmm. And listening to more good sermons and 
ended up getting rebaptized a few months later at the church we were at at the time. So did you find <clears throat> like peace or uh, forgiveness or like that weight being lifted from you? Yeah, definitely. It was it was almost like just immediately I just felt like as soon as I sort of had that realization and then I realized like the truth about the fact that Jesus has paid the price hmm. for us because before it was just words and mm-hmm. it was like I could at that time like not too long after that I miscarried twins which was a very difficult thing to go through hmm. and um I remember feeling physically like Jesus was comforting me, like almost like he was literally in the room and um, listening to worship music and just feeling like he really was by my side through it. And I never had felt the presence of God like that before. And just um, it was just like a life-changing sort of pivotal moment for me and that was um after that your conversion or Mm -hmm. yeah i see yeah probably within a couple of months i guess like i said i'm not i don't know the day (laughs) Mm -hmm. the day that it happened i just know within a space of time where when it was roughly so aaron and uh, your husband and his family they were involved in christianity and that so um did uh, did he go through that with you or like has he um what's his involvement with christianity is he um into it like you are or um or not as much or, or? it's a slightly tricky topic for him as well because of various different things in his upbringing um, and sort of associations with God as a father and if you have issues with your own father sometimes it's easy to transfer those onto God as the father Mm -hmm. so without getting too much into detail about that is there he's he's on the autistic spectrum things are very black and white in his mind Mm-hmm. And um, he's been very let down by a church that we went to in Scotland when we lived there. Mm-hmm. So we did go back there for 10 years during our marriage. So um, there was a church we were involved with for like a year. And when he asked for help with something, um, he asked for uh, other men to sort of mentor him with an issue. Mm-hmm. And the pastor just kind of said, oh, sorry haven't got anyone which just grieves me especially now to look back because you know our church now if I if if he were to ask that now there would probably be a line of men you know around the block willing Mm -hmm. to help but it was just sort of crickets and silence and so he sort of felt like why why invest time into a church if churches aren't there when you need them Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah it's a different different it's been hard for me to understand how black and white things can be because that's not how my brain works mm-hmm. but for him it very much is you know 
Um, and just talking a little bit about um, the spectrum, or is that how you'd refer to it? Or I suppose. I don't know. They seem to change the, <laughs> the correct terminology quite regularly, so... When did you, um, you and Aaron uh, realize that he was on the spectrum? Um, probably back in 2007, I guess. Uh, we were not long living in Scotland at the time, and his brother had discovered that he was likely to be on the spectrum, high-functioning, you know, Asperger's, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And he had sent the link to this extensive test he had taken which had hundreds of questions um, and said you might want to have Aaron take this test because you know I'm pretty sure he's just like me Hmm. Um, so he he took it and I took it and the the scoring system was something like if you scored over 100 you were very likely to be on the spectrum you know Mm -hmm. 50 to 100, you're, you possibly are, and below 50, you're neurotypical. And my score was something like 13, and his mm-hmm. was like 113. It was something like that. It was so vastly different. Mm-hmm. So it, it helped me to understand he wasn't just being difficult. Mm-hmm. His brain just works so differently to mine. Mm-hmm. So um, it was an eye-opener for me and definitely a good thing for our marriage to mm-hmm. understand that about each other. Mm-hmm. So, um, what are some things that you just, um, try to keep in mind when you're, you know, relating to each other and the way you guys function together, knowing, um, that there's those differences between you, are there, um, you know, just, uh, how do, what do you try to keep in mind that that helps out? Well, one thing we do now is he will tell me if his cup is getting too full so to speak you know mm-hmm. sensory overstimulation like too much noise but especially if it's like at the same time as somebody's cooking so there's a lot of smells and you know it's just like everything kind of adds up the four-year-old is climbing on him so it's all the physical stimulation and it's all too much he'll tell me his spidey senses are tingling it's kind of our little code for like okay i need you to you know calm things down for me so that it doesn't explode because Mm -hmm. I can't handle it anymore so at that point I'll sort of turn off the music and tell the kids to go play outside and you know whatever I can do to just bring that back down Mm -hmm. for him sometimes it happens very quickly he feels fine and then all of a sudden he is not handling it very well Mm -hmm. okay um, is there any differences in communication, like when you're um, in communica- communicating with a black and white thinker? Do you have to um, communicate in a particular way just for that to be effective? Mm, I'm not really sure how to answer that because, you know, when you've been married to somebody for so long, you don't really think yeah. consciously about your communication. Um, but what I will say is that. Uh, years ago we went to a charity in the UK that um, is for people with any kind of autism spectrum disorder and because we were um, looking for help with some issues Aaron was having at work which were all sort of related to being on the spectrum like 
trouble with eye contact during meetings, for example. Mm-hmm. And we were just looking for support. So we were sitting there talking to these two guys who also were on the spectrum. And they were saying all this stuff. It just sounded completely ludicrous to me. And Aaron's nodding along. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? Like, for example, eye contact. The guy said to me, how often, when you look at somebody, how often is a, or when you're talking to somebody, sorry, how often is appropriate to look at them and for how long? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I've never thought about that before in my life. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just until you look at I mean, right. it's, you know, you don't think about it. And he said, okay, well, we have to think about it. And we have rules in our minds that tell us, you know, how close you are to this person, as in how well you know them, whether they're a man or a woman, whether they're in any kind of authority of you, like all these different factors. How long is too long to look before it's awkward? And, you know, mm-hmm. like there's sort of these, he almost described it as if there's a computer program in his head running to tell him all these variables and okay so look for four seconds look away for three seconds look back Hmm. and it just boggled my mind like the level of thought that goes into communication and like I said Aaron was um, sort of nodding away because he he doesn't necessarily have a computer program in his head but he has to think about things that I don't have to think about and it kind of opened my eyes that communication even with somebody that you're really comfortable with can be exhausting when you have to think about all these things that you and I mm-hmm. who are neurotypical don't even think about it because it's sort of taken care of in the subconscious part of our brain all mm-hmm. those social nuances you've probably heard it said that something like 80% of communication is non-verbal mm-hmm. maybe even higher mm-hmm. you know body language and expressions and eye contact mm-hmm. So if you have to be aware of all those things, Hmm. it can be extremely exhausting. So um, I guess I just tried to sort of give him a pass, so to speak, and, you know, not worry about if he's saying something too bluntly or Mm -hmm. anything along those lines, you know. You know, you've... You've been a part of two different cultures, and that's kind of, Mm -hmm. so you probably have a unique perspective. What are the differences that, you know, come to mind when you think about the people and lifestyle of the UK compared to here in the United States? There's quite a lot. There's, There's more than I would have ever thought before I lived in both countries, because at least our perception in the UK... I don't know about here, but the perception in the UK is kind of like America is just a bigger, more um, flamboyant Britain. Like, they speak the same language, you know. They live the same way as in first world country, you know. It's just... Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize how much um, differences there actually were. And the ones that come to mind... um, customer service is the first one because it's almost non-existent in the UK as Hmm. as a whole like um, I often would feel like I was sort of inconveniencing people because I was trying to buy something from their shop or (laughs) whatever and here it's just so not like that I remember my dad when they visited once he had hired a car from um, there used to be an office in Arnold 
on Richardson Road of whatever branch, whatever company it was, Hertz or something. And he had booked it online and then he turned up a day early without realizing it because he had just remembered the date wrong. Mm -hmm. And the guy was apologetic to him. You know, I'm so sorry. We don't have the car you booked. Like normally I would just give you the car you booked, but we don't have it because you're early. I can give you this other car. It's an upgrade, but we won't charge you any extra. So he came out almost like jaw on the floor, like I messed up and they like gave me a better car for free. You know, what is going on? Like, I don't understand this because that it would not happen in the UK. They'd just be like, too bad. See you tomorrow. You know, Mm -hmm. and that sort of is the same in, I would say most service based industries. It's just a different mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, and then people, which it probably goes along with this actually, but I would say people are more real in the UK. I feel like in the US, there's sort of a, a more of a front that people put on of everything's fine. And, hmm. you know, where you walk into somewhere and they're all smiling and you know that they're not really happy. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a persona. Hmm. Like, yeah, everything's good. Mm-hmm. Even if everything's falling apart at home. Mm-hmm. you know so us Brits like to complain and so maybe we're just more like real with each other in that sense we're used to you know dreary weather and mm-hmm. um, being miserable sort of a badge of honour which is not a good thing but it just yeah it sort of doesn't have the same front of mm-hmm. um, America in general has and then one that one thing that um, I've definitely noticed, especially after coming back from those ten years in Scotland, because of Aaron working in, um, he worked in a big corporation there, and so so a lot of what the corporate culture is, because I had never worked in a big company when I worked there, only in small places, and seeing the the difference, things like. Um, being politically correct and sexual harassment type situations and just anything like that that you particularly think of in a corporate culture you know sensitivity training and so on here it's it's just almost like people look to be offended like they Mm. get offended really easily about Mm -hmm. things and in the UK it's not like that people joke around with each other all the time they in a way that people don't hear and so when he came into a corporate environment here he was sort of like I feel like I can't I have to be so careful because you know just saying one wrong thing I could get a sexual harassment lawsuit or I could get like all these things you know and it was innocent Mm -hmm. and he he never had that worry in the UK because it's it's just a different culture Hmm. and there's also not a litigious culture there either so if you injure yourself on your friend's property, nobody's trying to go after their homeowner's insurance for a lawsuit like they are here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a different mindset. Hmm. What about, um, like, the, you know, Christian culture differences in the UK from here and just the way people get together for church and, and things like that? Well, obviously, I... I this is one area I can't really speak for the UK as a whole, I would say, because I'm sure that, like here, it's different in different areas. 
Um, but where we lived, which is in the northeast of Scotland, quite a rural area, really, and it's quite—it's an area where a lot of people, you know, have just always lived there. There's not a lot of um, immigration or emigration very much. There's a lot of people that have lived in the same town, and so their parents and grandparents did as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are definitely churches, and it's just, it's hard to, I don't want to sound judgmental because that's not at all my intent, but it just, there are all these churches, but I don't know how many actual Christians there are. We we tried several when we were there, and it was almost, almost without exception, it was sort of, um, you know, show up two minutes before the service starts and then like as soon as the pastor says amen you're out the door and take off your Sunday best and back to normal life and Mm -hmm. I was not looking for that I was looking for a church with fellowship and Mm -hmm. um, so I ended up when I was there attending a church that theologically I never would have expected to go to because it had very different views in some ways to me for example, infant baptism, which is not what I believe. Um, but it was the only church I could find that felt like a church where people knew each other and cared about each other. Hmm. Um, so I was going to a Baptist church prior to that for six months and my mother died unexpectedly. She was 50 years old and hmm. I hadn't heard from her for a few days. I went to check on her and found her dead. And wow. So the church, the next day the kids were supposed to be in a nativity play, so I had contacted the um, Sunday school leader to let her know they weren't going to be there because obviously they'd have to find other kids to play their parts and told her why. And I never heard a thing from the church other than a reply from her to say, I'm so sorry to hear that. But nobody from the church ever called me you know, sent me a card to say they were praying for me, nothing. And I just thought, why am I even? In, like, is this even a church? Mm-hmm. If something like that happens and nobody reaches out, it just seemed so foreign to me. And there are also a lot of churches there that are very into, like, prosperity gospel and things like that that I'm not comfortable with at all. So, like I say, I ended up in a church that did not seem spiritually theologically where I would like to be but it seemed better than a theologically correct church that had no real church behind it (laughs) and so when we moved here I knew I would have better options because there's just more churches but I didn't realize how many churches there were and I was very overwhelmed because I when I first moved here you know pulled up google maps and typed in church because I thought you know I didn't know how to start looking for a church. So I thought, well, I'll start there. And it was sort of like hundreds of pins just pop up within mm-hmm. half an hour from my home. And I said to Aaron, like, I could go to a different church every Sunday for probably 10 years and never drive more than an hour. Hmm. How do you find, you know, the needle in the haystack mm-hmm. when there's so many? Um, so... I started trying to visit churches, but I just never found one I was really, that I felt the Lord wanted me to be at. So 
Then somebody sent me the Eight Doctrines of Grace website and I found a rock for it. <laughs> and, you know, that was that. I knew straight away that that was where God wanted me to be. But it's, yeah, it's different because in the UK, like I said, we sort of think of ourselves, or at least, I don't know if maybe anymore, but we did think of ourselves as a Christian country because we still have a state church. Mm-hmm. There's no separation of church and state like there is here. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, and... In reality, the number of Christians, I would say, percent-wise, is probably lower than here, even though you don't have a state church and don't profess to be strictly a Christian country. So it's an interesting paradox, I think. Hmm. So the website, um, what, did you say it's eight doctrines of grace or eight? I- I can't remember. Okay, <laughs> but um, it was there was a directory on it which had Rockport, yes. your current church. Yeah. On it. Okay. And um, and your um, like theological perspective, it already kind of matched up with those that website and the churches it was listing. Yeah, um, my brother-in-law's sister-in-law prior to us leaving the U.S. in 2006, had begun attending a Reformed Baptist church in Illinois. And we had started visiting that when we could and really liked the preaching. And what I always felt was missing in a lot of the churches we'd been in in the past was a systematic preaching through the Bible because it just seemed like it was always random, you know, I'm going to cherry-pick these five verses and do a sermon on that topic. Mm -hmm. And I just had this hunger to go deeper into just, you know, a book of the Bible because it seemed like that was not happening anywhere and I felt like I wasn't getting that. Not getting nothing at all, but getting little out of it when I read it by myself because I didn't have the understanding yet of the context and... You know, so I just wanted to delve deeper. So their church definitely did that, and I was immediately like, "Wow, that's you know what I've been looking for." And when I learned more about Reformed theology, it just seemed to make sense to me. And um, so we had looked in Scotland, but the nearest one was about a three-hour drive or something. Hmm. So it wasn't an option for us, unfortunately. Well, when it comes to the Christian faith, um, you know, I'm just interested to, to find out from people what gives them confidence, like if they've thought about that, um, that they're on the, you know, that it's, uh, they're on the, a true path with the Christian faith as opposed to something else. So have, have you thought about that? Is there just anything in particular or particular things that gives you confidence in just everything you believe in as far as the Christian faith goes? I think just, you know, that feeling the presence of God for me was a big big one. I mean, faith is a, um, a tricky thing to describe, I think, 
like you because you either have it or you don't and if you have it then it's sort of like you can't not have it mm-hmm. Do you know what i mean yeah um for that reason i don't really i've never really since then i've never really doubted or had any cause to think maybe maybe some other path is actually the right path because i just trust god so implicitly and he's revealed himself to me many times and one time in particular that always stands out in my mind is um about homeschooling because i did not want to homeschool my children um you know the way i was raised was that homeschooling was a huge disadvantage to children and should should never be Mm-hmm. approached unless you're a qualified teacher and even then like you're going to socially stunt your children um but when we lived here in the u.s the first time i felt like i had no choice but time school because schools public schools were not an option my husband went to private christian school and said our children are not going to do that so that left home school by default but when we moved to scotland and they were still prior to school age i thought hey Scotland's got a good school system, so I can just put them in school, no problem. So that's what I did. And Cora, my oldest, had actually started to ask about homeschooling because our friends homeschooled, and I was saying, no, not going to happen. Like, you're in school, it's a good school, mm-hmm. um, no need. And it, it was sort of three weeks of her asking and me saying no, and then sort of, okay is this really what I should do is, you know, I'm just, I don't want to do it. And, um, I opened the fridge one day and I just heard God's voice say, why are you afraid to take responsibility for the gifts that I have given you? And I just basically threw up my hands and said, okay, I'll pull her out of school. And I did because it was so clear to me. And I, it, it really just did make me think about that. We're so, sort of conditioned to think that we can't fulfill our children's needs but God's equipped us to do that to raise them he's given us an instruction manual basically you know and uh, so moments like that really just that have stuck in my mind just um, keep doubt away if you want to say it that way for me Who's um, made an impact on your life, like, or influenced you in a significant way, like, you know, books or people or, or just, you know, anything like that? I don't, I don't know. I think I'd have to think about that one for longer, to be honest. That's fine. What um, what particular strengths do you have just based on how God has made you? Like, how do you think of yourself as, you know, like what are you particularly good at, I guess, or strength? Well, like I said earlier, I'm firstborn. I'm a quite typical firstborn, <clears throat> if you've ever read much about birth order. but um, So I like to lead because I think I'm good at that good at kind of making sure that there's a 
system in place to follow that everybody can you know know what needs to be accomplished and get it done mm-hmm. so uh, that's definitely a strength he's given me and <clears throat> um always always being hungry to learn more i would say is definitely another strength that he's given me like i've ne- even as a young child i was never satisfied with just being told this is true i always wanted to know well why is it true what makes it true what other evidence is there either way so that i can look at all the facts and make up my own mind rather than believing what I was told and I think that's really something that we're kind of a lot of people lack now because in school it's it's not encouraged it and it wasn't for me in school either mm-hmm. you're encouraged to just whatever is told to you is true you accept it blindly and um, so I had to kind of do that outside school but I think it served me well with homeschooling the kids as well because that's the mindset I have with them. That like I I believe the Bible is true, and I hope you do too. But you need to, you know, not just take me at my word. You need to come to that conclusion on your own and research it. And I'll be here to guide you and help you. But it has to be your decision for things like that mm-hmm. on what's true and what isn't. Well, you're into minimalism, mm. and um, so what? Um, what appeals to you about minimalism? Well, for one thing, I think it's biblical. Okay. Because I think that the more we have, the more distraction it is, and the more that our stuff just becomes an idol because it takes up so much of our time, you know, and. Um, One of the things we talk about in the class that I do is basically if you're, if you have extra of one thing, that's okay. But it's when you have extra of not only, you know, books, but you also have extra toys for your kids and you also have extra clothes and extra dishes and it it just mounts up and it becomes this big thing that consumes all your time because you're trying to manage it. And it robs time from other things. So like I said, it's become an idol. And our culture pushes us to that through consumerism. And, you know, every company wants to make profits. And they don't just want to keep making the profits they're making. They want to make more mm-hmm. and more and more into infinity, basically. <laughs> they just want to keep making more money. Well, how do they do that? By getting us to buy more stuff and... You know, we can easily, without even realizing it, think that the next thing will make us happy instead of looking to the true source of happiness. So, you know, when you're just, you want that new car or, you know, your house, you feel like your house is too small and all you can think about is getting a bigger house. It's a question of, you know, what is the motivation behind that for you? And there's nothing wrong with needing a bigger house if you if you need one, but mm-hmm. it's just easy for that stuff to become more important than it should be. Are there like things to keep in mind when considering a purchase um, that helps it to be 
a wise purchase rather than just accumulating more stuff? Well, I always like to ask, well, does it serve me or my family? Because you might have heard Marie Kondo was quite popular a little while ago, and she asks, like, does it spark joy? Well, I don't like that question because, you know, there's plenty of things in my house that are necessary but do not spark any joy for me. Um, But I like that question because that... Basically, it's, it's with everything, it's a risk-benefit analysis. So if you're looking at that new thing that you know you saw when you went to Aldi that's in their seasonal specials aisle or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's you know an impulse purchase, but then think, okay, so what if I buy this and then you know I spend 30 bucks and then in six months I end up giving it to Goodwill because I haven't used it, what's the cost of that? Not just monetarily but also time and you know space in your home and everything else so just thinking about that and then a tip I always give people when you're buying anything when you're at the store is pull over before you get to the checkout and just look through your cart again and ask yourself the same question because sometimes that 10 minutes is enough to say actually I don't need that because there's a lot of science about the response in our brain when we find you know a good deal or something like that it's like it's almost like a drug it's like a gives us a hit of dopamine and but just picking that up and kind of saying you're going to buy it that's where you get the hit it's not from the actual owning the item Mm -hmm. so sometimes it's enough to just 10 minutes later say do I really need that actually no I don't and I'll probably never even use it and put it back or Say, if I still want it tomorrow, if I still want it next week, then I'll come back and buy it. Because right. that gives you that breather to say, you know, I never drink coffee, so why was I going to buy an espresso maker? <laughs> you know? Right. One thing I notice, I do most of my shopping online, Amazon or eBay, and that I can just put things in the shopping cart and rather than purchase something, I can just put it in and wait. And many times after a few days, when I come back to the shopping cart, then I realize, well, I can take that out, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so exactly. That's, so cool. that's, that's a very good habit to be in. And, like, you can turn off your one-click purchase mm-hmm. option in Amazon to prevent that. Um, something that's often eye-opening for people is to go and look at their last six months of Amazon orders and add up the dollar amount. Hmm. There was a story in one of the minimalism books I read about a couple that were both working. They call them dinkies, dual income, no kids. So plenty of disposable income, theoretically. Mm -hmm. And they could never go on vacation. And they were sort of having this conversation about, why don't we have any money? Like, all our friends can go on vacation. Why can't we? And the doorbell rang. And it was the UPS driver with an Amazon package and it was like a phone case or something that the husband had ordered. And it was like a sort of light bulb moment and they both looked at each other and like, wait a minute. And they had they added it up and they had spent something like $20,000 on Amazon in the last year between the two of them. Hmm. Just on little stuff that they quote unquote needed, like a mm-hmm. new phone case. Mm-hmm. You know, no big purchases. It's just the convenience of it. You know, mm-hmm. being able to just buy it right now and it'll be in my door tomorrow. Right. So, yeah, definitely holding off on those things. 
mm-hmm. is um, a good habit to get into. Is there anything that you would change as far as like how the church functions? Anything that you would like to see or any thoughts about that? Are you talking about church in general or Rockport Baptist Church? I guess, well, kind of both. Just the traditional way that we function like um, and enjoy Christian fellowship um, together. Just was wondering if you had any thoughts. Um, I mean, I think it's really important to foster that culture of fellowship for sure and which we we do I think but like I personally I miss having fellowship meals twice a month mm-hmm. because if you missed one you still go to the next one and now I feel like you know if, if somebody's sick and we miss one it's like two months until we get a chance to actually sit down after church and chat to people mm-hmm. so but I appreciate that they even have them monthly because some churches never have them mm-hmm. um, and something I I would love to see happen here it's not a thing here but maybe it could become a thing I don't know in the UK almost every church at least the more sort of traditional old churches that are in the centres of towns and things like that has um, a mum and toddler group and so like once a week they open their doors on a Wednesday morning or whatever and they have, you know, tea and coffee and biscuits for the mums and juice for the kids. And they just pull out all the toys into the middle of the fellowship hall. And the mums sit around the edge and get to chat. And, hmm. you know, the the church people that are there get to try and talk to them about Jesus. And, you know, invite them to actually come to church and things like that. But a lot of the church members will go too because it gives them that time to, okay, we're in a safe place. The kids are playing and mm-hmm. occupied and I can just talk to my friends hmm. you know and I really miss that because I used to go all the time with my older mm-hmm. kids when we lived in Scotland to mm-hmm. stuff like that um, but there's nothing that I found like that here mm-hmm. so yeah, I, I feel like maybe we need to think a bit more about outreach as well like how do we reach people that aren't already in the church and there's a that's a whole nother podcast episode, I think, <laughs> mm-hmm. to think about that. It's a big topic. You know, you were mentioning that thing that with the moms and the toddlers in Scotland. Is there more community interaction in general in Scotland uh, than there is here? I definitely think so. And I think a big driving force behind that is that not everybody drives. And okay. we don't drive to everywhere we need to go either. So... If you were going to go for a day of shopping, you know, to buy new clothes for the kids and, you know, whatever else, go out for lunch maybe in the middle of the day, you would go and park generally. I mean, it's not always the case. It depends how far out of the actual town you are. But you would go park and then just walk for the day. Walk to all the different shops because they'd all be in the town centre or yeah. in a... Um, in a suburb, you, you know, it's more similar to here. We j- would drive between places, but it's still much more common for people to walk and much more common for people to not use their car as much, you know, because they'll just take a bus so they don't have to 
park in town or whatever it is you know mm-hmm. and um so here when you drive everywhere you're basically sort of self-insulating mm-hmm. the entire time you're not interacting with people except when you're actually in places and even then it's probably minimal it's different when you're walking everywhere because you see people you know and you know you pop into the local coffee shop and there's again people you know that are out walking around and it's it is a different mindset i remember one time when we visited here while we were living in scotland and i went to walgreens with my sister-in-law she needed to go to Deerbergs, which was across a very slow street and I said let's just walk and she looked at me like I had five eyes or something she was just like oh you're so European like we don't do that here and I was like well why not it's a nice day let's just walk over there so we did and she was like we're probably going to get arrested for jaywalking because not even allowed to cross the street unless it's you know at the light and it was just funny to me the difference in that mindset mm-hmm. well this is kind of like a, a big question just to spring on you I guess but just kind of see what your thoughts are as we're wrapping up um, like where do you hope you are going in life or similar question you know what do you want your life to be about Um, what do I want my life to be about? Furthering the kingdom of God. Which for me, I think my main calling for that, at least right now, is through homeschooling. Um, because I work for Classical Conversations, which is who we homeschool through. And classical education is such a gift to our children because it really teaches them how to think, not what to think. Hmm. And by working for them... I am directly making that available to more families because I am finding and contracting directors to run our programs and things like that. And um, I was very reluctant to even consider CC at first. And then when I went to the first info meeting and I opened a catalogue, and there's a statistic about how many challenge, which is our high school program, how many challenge graduates are active in their church. Because that's something that has worried me worry is probably not the right word, concerned me for a long time. Mm -hmm. So many children raised in the church or, you know, saved at youth groups or summer camps or whatever that I'm like, where are all these adults? Because I don't see the numbers drop off so much, even among Christian families. Mm -hmm. What piece of the puzzle are we missing? And when I opened the catalogue and saw this crazy high statistic for how many graduates were active in their church God just told me like this this is what you've been praying about for years for you this is how you can answer that concern that you have because you can make this you know you can bring this to your children and um, I didn't know at that point I was going to end up working for them but I just knew it was where God wanted me and um, I think that that is that's where obviously at this season of my life that's where I'm able to focus but 
my youngest is only seven months, so <laughs> I've still got another 18 years that I can do this, hopefully. But I just think about the, the, the ripple effect, you know, because the more people that I can um, equip with this program to teach their children in a classical way and to teach them how to think, and they really, in the challenge classes, they really kind of dis- dissect their beliefs with a safe um, leader guiding the discussion mm-hmm. and then put them back together. So they graduate for the most part, you know, sure of what they believe and on a firm foundation. And, and like I mentioned earlier, is, you know, s- some of us are raised to just, well, you believe what you're told because mom and dad said so. And there's not, never more than that. And I never wanted that for my kids. And so this gives them... Like, I don't want them to go off to college and their first exposure to somebody challenging their beliefs is their college roommate. Hmm. When hmm. they're away from our household, I want it to be now while they're in my household. Mm-hmm. And we can have those other discussions at home. So the more people I can introduce to this, not that I, I don't see my goal is to bring more, like, recruit more families. I, I just see it as to to be able to let people know it's an option and naturally I think they will be led to it um, which has certainly been the case so far and just to be able to give them those tools to educate their children that way and then those children are going to be raised and you know it just kind of keeps going outwards it's going to affect how they raise their own children when they grow regardless of whether they do CC or what have you but just helping a generation to be raised to be free thinkers and critical thinkers and have hopefully this biblical worldview in a way that they might not otherwise have had access to so easily. Are there any blogs or websites or anything that you would like to, um, to refer people to? As far as for me or for things they might find interesting? Well, um, for, for um, being involved, knowing about what you're involved with or things that's important to you, like the CC that you just mentioned. Well, Classical Conversations, they can just look up their website. There's quite a lot of free information on there about what classical education is and how we equip homeschoolers. Um, and they can even contact me through there if they're local. Um, and then if they're interested in minimalism, I would recommend Joshua Becker, who I w- he has books. I would say, you know, check out the book from the library. Don't buy it because you, <laughs> you don't want to add more clutter, but, you know, borrow it or buy it and then gift it to somebody else. Um, and if they... I don't post much these days but I am on Facebook and Instagram as this minimalist mama and I do have minimalism course so once all this COVID-19 has passed us by I'll hopefully be going back to doing that well thanks Amber I appreciate the time no problem thank you if you use a podcast app like iTunes please give a review of conversations about life 